0: Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story Addiction and Living Hope. Okay, we'll get to my interview with Rachel Barco in just a few minutes, but first the news. It's been a crazy busy week getting ready for the Day of Empathy event here in Michigan. The site is set, the speakers are set, the legislative meetings are set. I even bought some new dress clothes, and all we have to do now is hope that people show up. I know these kind of fears are irrational, and we've worked very hard to get this event ready, but when you're a bit of a control freak, I guess I have to admit I am, the things you can't control, and that's usually a long list, often haunt you until the event actually happens. Luckily, tomorrow is finally the day of empathy, so we'll soon know what happens one way or the other. Hope you'll be going to the event in your state. You still have time. To find your event, simply go to the dayofempathy.org slash events. That's dayofempathy.org slash events. I was also infuriated this week by a couple of pieces of news. First, the Macomb County has decided that the Macomb Jail, one of the worst jails in Michigan, a place where 17 people have died since 2012 and where I was once incarcerated for several months while waiting to go to prison, should be rebuilt, spending around $170 million new dollars on putting lipstick on this pig. No offense to pigs. Can you imagine how much good could be done and how much crime could be prevented if that money was reinvested in the community of Macomb, while Macomb itself also fully invested in the idea of ending or substantially curtailing pretrial detentions? In my opinion, this would be a much better solution than spending $170 million to build a shinier torture chamber. Second, the Senate of the state of Indiana decided it would be a great idea to pass a bill mandating that all people with felony records were are, were directly placed on a searchable and public online database. Every single person who's ever been charged with a felony. They did this with approximately eight minutes of debate, and the vote was nearly unanimous. They didn't seem to care much that all of the available evidence suggests that public registries are very counterproductive and that the collateral consequences of always being reminded of your record stops people from being employed, stops people from getting housing, stop people from all kinds of things. This is the literal opposite direction of what every single other state is trying to do. It's just very frustrating that someone... Uh, thinks this is a good idea, and I would love to hear what possible reason they have for passing a bill at a time when almost everybody recognizes that we should be going in the other direction and trying to remove collateral consequences and make it easier for people to clear their record. If this goes up, there is almost no way for people to get off of this online database And it, you know, just making it public, it's just a terrible idea. Uh, Anyway, this is a great lead into my conversation with Rachel Barco about her new book, which is about the politics of mass incarceration. Rachel Barco is the Siegel Family Professor of Regulatory Law and Policy and the Faculty Director of the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU. In June of 2013, the Senate confirmed her as a member of the United States Sentencing Commission, where she served until January 2019. Since 2010, she has also been a member of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office Conviction Integrity Police Advisory Panel. Boy, that's a mouthful. Professor Barco teaches courses in criminal law, administrative law, and constitutional law. In 2013, she she was the recipient of the NYU Distinguished Teaching Award. She just published a new book addressing the political dynamics behind mass incarceration and institutional reforms to curtail it called Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Professor Marco. My pleasure. Okay. So I always start off asking my guests how they got from where they, uh, where they started to doing the work they're doing now. So how did you get from, you know, heading off to college to working on the sentencing commission and writing books about institutional criminal justice reform?
1: Okay. So that starts further back. Uh, I would say, <laughs> well, the path from college to law school, in all honesty, was just, I couldn't get a job and didn't know what else to do with myself. So I found myself going to law school with my liberal arts major. And once I was in law school, the classes that interested me the most by far were the classes that had to do with government power, you know, the ability of the government to do things to people, to take people's liberty away, to tell people what to do. Um, those to me were the most interesting pressing issues that we talked about. So from that moment on, I was pretty much hooked on the idea of exploring limits and checks to make sure that the government didn't abuse what it was doing. Um, and then the deeper I went into those issues and got closer to people affected by it, um, I became more and more uh, committed to working on these issues, not only with my scholarship, but you know, doing some on the ground issues related to in- reforming the system as well.
0: The book covers a huge amount of ground. So you broke it into three parts. In part one, you detail kind of the irrationality of our current policies. Let's start with a little bit of a speed round to get through the pretty wide range of issues that you highlight. I would be remiss not to mention that one of the first examples you give is folks like myself on sex offender registries. Why did you choose to highlight this issue? And what have you concluded from uh, thinking about it?
1: So I wanted to get at this issue that I see a lot whenever any criminal justice reform is talked about online or in discussion forums, inevitably there is someone who says something like, well, you know, do the crime, do the time, you know, and if you didn't want these things to happen to you, you shouldn't have committed the crime in the first place. And there's very much, I think, built into that idea an implicit assumption that we have proportional punishments and proportional responses to people committing crimes. And so at the outset, what I wanted to highlight was ways in which we have laws that go far beyond, um, I think what most people would expect the consequences for various crimes would be how categories are very broad, um, and end up covering, uh, more people than I think anyone would think should be lumped together for various kinds of punishments or consequences. So, um including sex offender registries was an obvious choice for me um, because they're so overbroad, because uh, there's lots of evidence that by having so many people on registries, we actually end up undermining public safety instead of helping it because no one could keep track of that large number of people. And there's so many people on there who don't need to be as a matter of monitoring them for public safety purposes. So so what I was hoping to do was give examples like that, um, and there's lots of others in that chapter, of just things that Hopefully, would educate people that when we say "do the crime," you know what you might think is the crime is very different from how the law might define it, and then the consequences associated with it are often very disproportionate. So, so that was the hope, um, and that was what I was thinking in terms of giving examples was to come up with some good ones um, that I think illustrate that. So, sex offender registries, mandatory minimum punishments, um, felony murder. There, there are several in there that hopefully all illustrate the same basic idea that were calling people certain categorical names that I think don't really fit well what they've done. And then, unfortunately for those folks, the punishments they end up getting um, really are the kinds of punishments that I think people would think are attaching to far worse examples of those offense categories than what most of the people in the category actually did.
0: Another example you give is drugs and the war on drugs. So how how does that play out in that area?
1: So I... There's a lot. Um, For sure, the idea of mandatory minimum sentences is part of it, but also this idea that we pretty much uh, take the federal system, for example, it's really based, your punishment is based on the quantity of drugs involved in the offense, and there's not much attention paid to what your role was. So, If you're the kingpin or you're the street courier or you're the mule, if you're part of this drug conspiracy, you'll all be on the hook. All those people will be on the hook for the quantities involved in the conspiracy. So their sentences would all, give or take a little bit in terms of adjustments, be the same. which is a really crazy way to set up a punishment system because i don't think most people would think oh right everyone in a conspiracy regardless of the role they're playing regardless of the profits they might be making regardless of whether or not you know they're at the top or they're the lowest person on the hierarchy that they should all be treated the same but that's how we do it and as a result i think you find a lot of people in in prison you know thousands and thousands of people who are there as part of conspiracy charges, drug conspiracy charges, even though they were little cogs in a much bigger drug sales operation. But it turned out that that overall drug operation just involved such high quantities that those people got hit with punishments that were really designed, frankly, for kingpins. You know, when you look at the legislative history behind those federal sentencing laws associated with drug trafficking, that's who they were talking about, the legislators. They were talking about getting kingpins, getting these big big level organizers because they in their mind were thinking, oh, it's the kingpin that'll have all the quantity attached to the drugs. And I think they just never thought about how conspiracy law would operate such that you could have lots of people way further down getting caught with those same really harsh punishments.
0: And I think uh, another really good example you give is uh, when you're talking about felony murder laws, you tell a story about four teenagers in Indiana who became subject to uh, felony murder laws. Could you explain that example?
1: So felony murder is another really good example of how people get uh, treated much more harshly than what their conduct would justify. So if you are, let's just start with an individual who commits a felony, and if it turns out in the course of that felony, somebody dies, most places you're going to be able to the prosecutor is going to be able to charge them with felony murder. Um, but it's also true that let's say it's now a group of people and they've all agreed a group of young kids, like in that Indiana case, you know, they all agree they're going to burglarize a house and they may think the house is empty um, and they go in there and it turns out that there is an owner present and the owner starts shooting at the people engaged in the burglary and somebody dies. One of the people burglarizing the house dies They can all be charged, all those kids that engaged in the burglary, for that death, even though none of them fired any of the shots. And in fact, it was a gunshot from the homeowner defending their property because the idea is in the course of the felony, somebody died. Um, And, you know, you see that in jurisdictions around the country. The law varies in places. Some places won't allow it to be that way, but there are places where it happens. And it's often the case that in that group commission of a crime. You know, you have some older kids and some younger kids, and the younger ones, I think, a lot of the time really don't know what they're getting themselves into. And before they know it, what they thought was just going to be a way to, you know, burglarize an empty house turns out to involve somebody dying, and they may find themselves in prison for the rest of their life, because we definitely have cases of life without parole in those circumstances.
0: So you uh, also mentioned a couple times mandatory minimums. You mentioned that there, uh, you actually go through a pretty long list of reasons why there isn't much of a rational basis for our obsession with long sentences and incapacitation for long periods of time, and that actually incapacitation for a long period can increase crime. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So I'm just trying to get at this idea that there, I think, um, is a conventional wisdom out there that long sentences are really a good idea, Um, first because they deter people. And we know from the research that, in fact, they're not doing a whole lot of deterrence work. Uh, People are really motivated by whether they're going to get caught or not, and they're paying far less attention to whether it's 12 years or 15 years or 20 years. Um, And then beyond that, there's a conventional wisdom that, well, but okay, maybe if it's not deterrence, at least you're incapacitating people. You know, for the time that they're locked up, they're not out there outside of the prison walls committing crimes. And so that's another public safety benefit. And what I try to do in the book is, first of all, make everyone aware of the fact that most people do come out of prison. Um, More than 95% of the people who are incarcerated will ultimately come back to their communities. And so even if there is an incapacitative benefit. And, and I do want to talk about how much, if at all, there is. But you know, to the extent we are getting some benefit from that, we would want to weigh that against how much more difficult it is for people when they come out of prison to readjust if they've been there for a long time. Because we also know the longer that someone is incarcerated, the more difficult it is for them to reenter society um, and you know, to lead a law-abiding life. So there's a trade-off there. Uh, and in thinking about the trade-off, I, I want to get people to Pay attention to the fact that the incapacitation argument assumes that, you know, these would be people who would be continuously committing crimes, uh, but for the fact that they're in prison. But we know that's also not true. You know, we know people age out of their criminal behaviors. It'd be very unlikely for somebody who engaged in a violent crime to continue doing that after a certain age. There's a classic age crime curve that criminologists can show you uh, that people, you know, people grow up. And I think we all know that from our personal experience dealing with other human beings that people change over time. People lose energy. <laughs> um, young people who might have a lot of... I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one resonates with me. That, that one I certainly got uh, at a very visceral level. Uh, but, you know, the idea that people really aren't the same when they are in their 40s and in their fifties um, than they would have been in their in their twenties. So keeping people away for 30 years, there's at a certain point, you're not getting an incapacitative benefit anymore because they wouldn't be committing crimes anyways. And so you're just incarcerating them for longer periods of time than would be necessary on any public safety rationale. And then you're making it worse when they come out because it's really going to be difficult for them to adjust. So, so I was hoping to get out this, you know, very utilitarian public safety argument, in addition to just the humanity uh, associated with keeping people longer than they need to be, obviously, is a huge part of this as well. But, you know, in speaking to the folks that are really interested in public safety, I want to emphasize that this is one of those arguments where kind of all concerns point in the same direction, which is we are sentencing people for periods that are just too long, no matter what the rationale of punishment
0: so you mentioned aging out of crime. Uh, I don't know if you've read this or not, but about a month ago, the uh, sentencing commission, oddly enough, put out a report that suggested two things. One is that people aren't aging out of crime like they used to, at least at the federal level. And second, that despite that, it doesn't seem like the length of sentence has much of an effect on, on their recidivism. Uh, did you see that or have you thought about that?
1: I did see that report. And I, and I will say, you know, there are some... Uh people who do continue to engage in criminal behaviors for longer, and that data did show that um, for certain people with very um, long criminal histories, so the, you know, very, very lengthy rap sheets, (laughs) to put it another way, um, that they were continuing their criminal conduct for periods longer uh, than we had seen previously. So, you know, they were still committing crimes in their 40s in a way that you hadn't seen in other data sets that people had looked at, but but I do think there's a couple things to notice from the Sentencing Commission's data. So, you know, one of those things was that the people with these really lengthy criminal histories were really... Um, the ones we were seeing this happen with. So that matters a lot, how much people had engaged in criminal conduct before. Um, And and for those- That also
0: kind of inflates the the total, correct?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, because we also see people who um, it's their first offense or they've never done anything before, um, the odds of reoffending are slight. And even under the commission's data, you still see that age crime curve. You're still seeing people aging out of their crime. And then the other really big caveat is even when you're looking at the crime that they're continuing to engage in. You know, I think there's a misperception out there that, you know, we're talking about people who are like Hannibal Lecter and they're, you know, <laughs> they're they're out there and they're killing one victim after another. You know, it's not like that. These are um you know, maybe it's someone who's had a a long history of drug trafficking, and if they reoffend, it may be additional drug trafficking. Or um, you may see, you know, the most serious crimes in most of those categories were things like simple assault, which I'm not saying that's a great thing to have happen. But even when we look at what happens when somebody is reoffending, it's important to see what it is that they're doing. And I think there's an assumption that it's a lot of uh, very serious violent crime, and the data is not showing that. Um, So even if we were concerned about continuing criminal activity, it's not necessarily the case that the proper way to deal with that is more incarceration. Uh, And if anything, I think another takeaway from that data and data like it is, it sure looks like prison doesn't do a very good job <laughs> in terms of stopping people from committing further offenses. You know, whatever it is we're doing while people are incarcerated isn't, isn't working very well. You know, it's a very poor government program, I would argue. So, yeah, Unfortunately, things, having
0: been there, I can tell you it doesn't do a lot to help you turn I, your life around.
1: <laughs> I have heard that from many people. And, and I think that's something that is to me, that's one of the weird aspects of our punishment policy. You know, if we had any other government program that failed as as badly as prison did, you know, people would be storming the ramparts to say, let's stop this awful thing. And instead, people look at data like that and they think, wow, we need more prison. You know, we need more of this very thing that didn't work. Um, and so I, I also hope that it, it, it can get us to reexamine that clearly that approach is not a very
0: effective one. I think one of the things I really enjoyed about this section of the book was that you went beyond just the people who are incarcerated to the larger social structures that uh, are connected to them. Uh, For instance, when you talk about Securus and video visitation and kind of the other collateral kind of costs to family members uh, as something that creates, uh, if not additional crime, at least additional poverty, which can create a lot of the same problems. Is that fair?
1: Yes absolutely I think one of the you know we do a lot of things in terms of prison management where we put people when they are incarcerated is often far from their loved ones we make it really hard for people to visit um, and all those things are terrible if our goal was to make sure that when people come out they're less likely to to reoffend because we want to maintain people's social networks and and that is important for public safety. It's also really important to those third parties. I mean, why, why would we punish an entire family and an entire community? Um, we should try to minimize that as much as possible. And yet, it seems like, if anything, uh, we, we seem to be going out of our way to make this have ripple effects, not just for the person who's incarcerated, but so many others in their lives.
0: And this has a lot of negative effects on uh, the children of people who are incarcerated too, correct?
1: Yes. And I think that's a population that doesn't get enough attention in terms of the tragedy that is our approach. I'm glad to see that people are focused on the horrendous family separation policy at the border, which is is horrible. Um, And the imagery really gets people in an emotional way. And I share that visceral reaction that that's a inhumane and unjustified thing to do, and I think it's important for people to realize that we're doing that in the criminal justice system as well. We're taking people away from their children, and we're locking them away for long periods of time, and their children don't get to see them. Oftentimes, they're placed in facilities that are just too far away for a family to afford to be able to visit, and that facility may charge exorbitant rates for phone calls and video visitation, and it's severing the ties of those young children um, or older children children with, you know, with the parents whom they love. And it's really a, a tragic and, and awful response to, to do something like that and not necessary, you know, not necessary for any of the purposes of punishment. In fact, we should do the opposite because we should try to maintain those connections so that people, when they come out, still have them um, and, and not make these other third parties suffer unnecessarily because one person in their family committed a crime.
0: So last year, I had this discussion with Bruce Western, uh, and I wonder, why does our discussion of violence always stop at the prison door? Why don't we count violence that happens inside a prison while we're considering public safety and safety outcomes?
1: Oh, I think you're right. I think we should. I think in the political discourse, so to answer your question, you know, kind of why don't politicians think about that as a real cost of crime? You know, I think there's an us versus them kind of a political way of thinking about these things where the general public, because they have this image in their mind that the kind of people going away to prison are, you know, these the worst of the worst offenders that they're seeing on their local news at night. And in some ways, they view whatever happens behind prison walls as they don't care. And, and some people you'll hear, I, I see this on the comments as well, far too often, you know, somebody's happy if there's a horrible condition at a facility. I, I know you covered this uh, very well and called attention to that awful USA Today article that, you know, tried to make the fact that there might have been somewhat better food at the holidays during the government shutdown as something that, you know, should have been condemned as opposed to thinking, oh, well, of course they shouldn't get a decent meal at the holidays. But, you know, I think stories like that show that there is a sense among, uh, unfortunately, a large part of the public that, well, that's what you get. You know, you do the crime and, and you should get all those things. And that would include, i I, sad to say, I think is true, a sense by a fair number of people that if it means there's crimes being committed within prison walls, you know, that's that's part of the punishment. You know, I like you think that is not the way we should look at it at all, and in fact, you know those are real crimes, and those crimes should also be stopped. However, best we could do it, but but I do think that's the political discourse that produces that is just a frankly a lack of concern for the other um, that I think really just stems from a lot of misinformation that people have about who's in prison, what they're in for, um, and and that lack of more granular information, I think leads people to have those conclusions. I don't think you'll find that, though, among people who are personally affected, who have (laughs) loved ones who have served time um, in prison or have personally served time in prison. You know, you won't meet people who have personal experience saying that, but it does... I think you see it among people that have a far more distant relationship with the criminal justice system.
0: I mean, I'll get to this a little bit later, but I often say that the only silver lining to mass incarceration is that it's mass incarceration, that so many people have been affected that it becomes harder and harder for politicians to use the same because, you know, people have been exposed to it. They know that, you know, more and more people know the truth, you know. Uh
1: I think that's right. And I do, you know, that is a good silver lining way to look at it. (laughs) It There aren't many. (laughs) Yeah. But we may have reached that tipping point now, where there's just a lot of people who know better, um, and not just that they know better, but the stigma of having a prior conviction or a loved one with one, I think, is fading, so that people are speaking out, and and I think that is the other really helpful feature of this is having people personally affected, letting other people know what their experience was like. Um, I it's having an enormous impact. Uh, you know, we just saw it at the federal level with the First Step Act. Um, I think having formerly incarcerated people speak out was a big part of the reason that law passed so so it is a it is a a silver lining on a really dark cloud a yeah, <laughs> very and I, large and dark cloud we
0: definitely need to return to that when we get to solutions at the end uh because i do think that that's important so in part two of the book you start talking about root causes and kind of what are the main things that are, make this so intractable uh first could you explain the uh, what the what people call the willie horton effect
1: Sure. So the Willie Horton effect specifically refers to this case out of Massachusetts that involved a man who was out on a furlough program that they had, one of these weekend furlough programs, um, and although the program itself overall was quite successful with most people who were out on the weekend returning back to their prison facility with no problems at all, that was not true for Mr. Horton. Um, So while he was out, he committed, you know, a very violent offense against a couple where he had raped a woman um, and really brutally beat uh, her male partner. And the furlough got national attention when Michael Dukakis was running for president, because the there was an ad used against him that raised this Willie Horton case, you know, with um, pictures of Willie Horton, um, where they darkened his skin color, you know, it's just a very race-based political ad. And it is thought to have had an effect on the election, on that presidential election. Uh, and, you know, there there's some evidence that it did, but whether it did or it didn't, politicians have thought <laughs> that it did have an effect on the election. And, you know, none of them have wanted to have their own Willie Horton moment or their own Willie Horton ad. And so the result of that has been that no one, politicians have not wanted to support any programs that would yield any kind of outcome like that. So that means you see parole falling by the wayside. You'd see clemency uh, falling out of favor by governors, you know, because no one wants it to be said that they supported some program that let somebody out early. And then that person went on to do something awful because instead of you know blaming the person or blaming the fact that while they were incarcerated they didn't get enough programming or blaming you know systemic problems with opportunities, uh, the blame somehow falls on the early release part of it. And and so the result of it has been we have seen dramatic curtailment of things like parole and clemency and furlough programs and halfway houses and really anything that looks like cutting sentences short. um, It's also the reason why it's very hard to get uh, when even when sentences are reduced in legislation to get any of those changes made retroactively. Because again, there's this fear by politicians that if they make something retroactive and then someone ends up with a sentencing reduction, will, will there later be some high profile media story that's gonna highlight that that person committed a crime during a period when had they served the original sentence they got, they wouldn't have been out to commit the crime. You know, and we see it again and again in jurisdictions throughout the country. You know, the media loves that story. Um, they they run it all the time. Law enforcement always emphasizes it as their source to the media when that happens. They are first to point out that that was the case. And so the story runs, and it looks like the problem was that program. And as a result of that, we see programs get getting dismantled in places, even when, if you looked at overall, in many of these cases, way more public safety benefits than, than harm. Um, but that one ho- high-profile case can really derail an entire an entire way of, of addressing criminal justice issues.
0: Which is a little strange considering that, you know, you could tell that story the same way many more times just because of regular failures of the system. But the media never seems to cover, for instance, if someone through the regular process of uh, the criminal justice, uh, of coming out of criminal justice, uh, that when there's recidivism, they only cover it when there's uh, reform or something like that. Is that fair or...
1: Exactly. I mean, we don't have daily news shows that talk about the fact that we have crumbling urban uh, school systems or we have really poor health care or we have no job opportunities for people or we have people with mental health needs that aren't being addressed. You know, none of that gets gets covered (laughs) and none of that big structural stuff gets covered. And the other thing that doesn't get any attention are the success stories. You know, instead of the ad about Willie Horton, they're could have been, you know, that program had a success rate of about 99%. So if there had been a story every night about the people who were able to peacefully go on their furlough uh, and thereby participate in a program that when they ultimately were released made it far more likely that they would succeed when they got out, um, you know, that could be a story too. But that is just, we don't see those. We don't see those success stories uh, to the same degree, if at all.
0: And you suggest that there's some psychological reasons why that might be true?
1: I think that there is this sense among the the way the public thinks about sentences and punishments that once somebody is you know given that sentence by the judge if the original sentence was 20 years and then ultimately they through rehabilitation through good behavior while they're incarcerated through participating in programming if they end up getting released at a time that's earlier than that additional that that initial twenty years, there is this cognitive bias that people have that they have somehow lost that punishment time, and so when the person goes out and commits a crime, if they do, um, when they were released earlier than they were supposed to, there is this sense that that was because they got the early release, and we're gonna blame the the early release because it took away this thing that we had as the public. We had 20 years, you know, and we gave some of those years back. And if we hadn't had done that, you know, this person wouldn't be out when they were to commit their crime. Um, You know, it's a really irrational way to think about things because as you said, you know, when someone, after they've served 20 years, if they then go commit a crime, there's no thought of, wow, that 20 years really didn't work. <laughs> you know, that, that was a really poor use of 20 years because that person came out and they committed a crime. What was happening while they were in prison? Were they not getting any programming? Were they not getting any treatment? Were they not getting any cognitive behavioral therapy? You know, No one asks it that way because there's just a framing of it that, well... Once someone's out, it's their individual choice to commit a crime, and that's the cause, and it's not what what we did or didn't offer in prison or taking the time back even further, what we do and don't offer to communities in terms of opportunities. It's just very individualized. But when it's this uh, early release kind of mechanism immediately the thought is, oh, the government did something wrong in giving that early release. You know, that, that's the, that right there is the problem. So that's a framing that you see repeatedly. And, I, you know, I've got lots of examples of it in the book. Um, but I think people intuitively know about it, because if you're in a jurisdiction in the United States, you've probably seen articles like that about your parole system or bail if someone's released pre-trial, um, There's always stories where someone highlights that. And inevitably, there's some law enforcement official interviewed saying, well, if only they had stayed locked up you know and that sense that we we could have been protected from this but but all those other failings and all the other ways we could frame the problem just really don't get attention
0: maybe we should start making journalism schools teach opportunity cost
1: (laughs) (laughs) that wouldn't be a terrible idea
0: okay so you talk about problems with prosecutors too could you flush this out a bit
1: yeah, so I'm certainly not the only one who's raised the issue of prosecution. Yeah, I just talked to John Pfaff
0: earlier this week, so. <laughs>
1: yes, so there are lots of great people working on this issue. Um, you know, a couple things that I would highlight about it are that it is the case that this big increase in mass incarceration really is the last four decades or so. So it, it hasn't always been through American history that we've had this and so I do think it's helpful to try to figure out historically what are the things that have changed that contribute to the rise in incarceration. So one of the things would be the rise in the power of prosecutors um, and unchecked power on that on the part of prosecutors that, that coincides with this increase in incarceration. And I know that John Faff data supports as well a really important contribution to mass incarceration of prosecutors increasingly charging more felonies you know we have we just have more prosecutors so we have more people out there who can bring these cases and so we have more and more cases coming through the system as as felonies and with uh with more admissions to our jails and our prisons so they're really important to the story um but I think it's it's important to think about, you know, why they have this increased leverage, where it comes from. And and it's a few things. So one would be, um, you know, most cases don't go to trial. And the defendant, you know, will engage in, you know, I, I don't really like the term plea bargain because I'm not sure these are bargains. <laughs> <laughs> they're not bargains like I think. Yeah, they're,
0: they're definitely not, not a show. bargain like you get something great in the store, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: Right. A really, you know, Faustian bargain, I guess, or something. But basically, you know, prosecutors have been given a lot of leverage uh, over the last several decades because the way that legislators pass laws now. So, one, there's a lot of mandatory minimums on the books, and that means that prosecutors, when they threaten somebody with charges, there's not an uncertainty, well, but maybe the judge won't see it as seriously as the prosecutor does, because if that offense has a mandatory minimum attached... Then that's it. You know, the judge has to give the mandatory minimum as long as the person is guilty of that offense. So that gives them more leverage. The fact that there are just more crimes so the prosecutor can pick and choose from among a range of different options because there have been so many enactments of new crimes out there that gives them the ability to pick and choose which ones they'd like to threaten somebody with. Um, There is really no court oversight of any of this. You know, the Supreme Court has, to me, inexplicably, just not paid attention to plea bargaining. And so even when prosecutors threaten people with charges that would carry punishments, you know, three times greater um, than the ones that they're offering if the defendant were to plead guilty, the Supreme Court has has said, fine, you know, that's not coercive. Um, You know, I'm not sure that any person who looked at that would really say that that's not coercive, (laughs) you know, in any plain way that you view that dynamic. But, But the Supreme Court doesn't check any of that. And I think that line of cases has been really problematic for purposes of checking prosecutorial power and abuse. And so it just allows prosecutors to threaten really high sentences and charges. Um, You know, you add to that, the other thing the Supreme Court doesn't police really is the sentence length with the cruel and unusual punishment clause. So, you know, without a check on the punishment attached or the coercive bargaining, prosecutors have a ton of leverage over over people. So it's not a surprise uh, that the guilty plea rate is as high as it is uh, and these cases aren't going to trial and you know that's one of the reasons that we see just more and more people entering prisons and jails because prosecutors have so much leverage over them there's the laws are also written in a way that there's not much to fight so sweeping criminal laws, lots of leverage in prosecutors, really long sentences, you know, you add it all together. And without a check on what they're doing, it's pretty easy to see how you build up your prison system. And and then the only other thing I'll just add to that is, you know, the Frank Zimmering idea of the correctional free lunch. I was
0: they're just about to bring that it. up.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, they don't have to pay for it. So they, they have no check, even in a fiscal sense, because they're, you know, district county attorneys um, in their locality, they're, normally sending these people away to state facilities and so the state budget is picking up the tab for these things and they don't have to pay for the for the money and so their local community doesn't feel the pinch when they do it so there there's really no rationalizing force on them to hold them back and and when you add all that together uh it, it's a horrible government design, you know. I mean, I, I just – no central planner in their right mind, I think, would set things up that way and think that you'd get good outcomes. But, you know, that's what we have. And and that gives prosecutors enormous power, very little accountability for how they're exercising it, and a blank check to do it. <sighs>
0: Yeah. I think uh, I'll just read a couple of the things you say in the book that this is all this combination of the things we just talked about has gone so far that many of the tough on crime laws are not passed to improve public safety. Instead, these laws are merely an exercise in symbolic politics. And you also say that just about everywhere in the United States, most critical decisions about criminal justice policy are nothing more than highly politicized gut reactions. That's pretty strong.
1: Yeah, I stand by all that though. (laughs) I wish it weren't true, but I, I think that is what we do. We just have, when you read legislative, a debate is actually too nice a word to describe how it usually looks, but when you read legislative discussions before new criminal laws are passed, the amount of time they spend on actual information about who would be covered, how much would it cost, what is the likely deterrence effect, um, you know, what are other approaches we could adopt, that's just not in there. Um, It's just a bunch of posturing about some high-profile event that got this issue on their agenda in the first place. Um, You know, the laws that are named after victims are a classic example of this, where There's some horrible crime that happens, and I certainly understand public outrage when it does, but the whole approach in our system of government should be when something like that happens, instead of just an emotional, visceral, immediate reaction, you know, really thinking about what's the best way to address something like this and also, how you know, how typical is this? What are the range of things that could happen? You know, any of those kind of just sensible ways that you would hope your government would deal with something. I mean, I like to compare it to things like um, a plane crash or a drug that is approved but has a bad reaction. You know, I mean, if you just, if we dealt with those issues the way we deal with criminal justice, we wouldn't have air travel anymore because there 'd be the one crash and people would say, "My gosh, we can never do this again and and you know we don 't thankfully do that there and we don 't do that with a you know there may be a, a bad outcome with a drug, but if on net that drug is helping so many people you know we keep it and we think about ways to minimize whatever the harms are or to have warnings or to to, to come up with the best Approach weighing all the costs and benefits, and we take a rational approach to those issues. But with criminal justice policy, there's nothing like that. It's just this high profile case, and people talk about the emotions attached to it, and we need to get tough. And and then lo and behold, the law follows. But the sad part about, I mean, it's it's a tragedy of epic proportions as far as I'm concerned, because not only is it. Uh, Ineffective in terms of public safety, but so many times it it's backfiring that that it's making us less safe. Uh, it, we're you know we're taking approaches that that if anything are making problems worse. So to me, this is. Uh, perfect area to come up with a better approach for addressing it, because I think it would speak to so many people who are hurting over our current approach, people who are crime victims, people who are serving the sentences and their families who have been justice involved. You know, kind of no one is winning with the approach that we have now. It's just a complete policy failure um, for all concerned. Uh, But, you know, to me, the good news is it could be it could be made better um, if we really step back and said, okay, if we did this rationally, (laughs) you know, what would our approach to some of these things look like? And I think we would have many things that would change.
0: Yeah. Just to tie this part up with a bow. I mean, just yesterday, the Indiana Senate with, I believe, eight minutes of debate passed a bill that would have uh, that will create a basically an online registry for everyone who's ever had a felony in the state of Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) just the 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 sheer i mean i think that just puts says everything you were just saying kind of perfectly it's how how bad it has gotten so now we reach part three which is what we can do about this mess you start out with prosecutors and the election of prosecutors so what can we do to fix the problem of prosecutors
1: Okay, so um, so you know, I think your example with Indiana is perfect segue. <laughs> you know, they, how do you, how do you end up with something that bad? Um, and how do you stop it from happening again? And so I think the first thing I would say is you don't let the Indiana legislature make that policy directly. You know, you 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 think about ways in which there's other people assigned the tasks of analyzing these issues. So we'll get to them in a minute. But but one group of folks that are directly elected, just like the legislatures, um. Are prosecutors in most places uh so they are up for election and they have been similar to legislators governors uh, other politicians they have run on these tough on crime campaigns and because they're only responsible for criminal justice uh that, that is is what they have emphasized, that they'll be tough. They might emphasize uh, convictions in particular high-profile cases or long sentences they've got. That's been the playbook for a really long time. But as I point out elsewhere in the book, and we've already talked about today, you know, those long sentences often are counterproductive and, in fact, can make us less safe. So, you know, that's a poor model for selecting a prosecutor. So what I have in the book are kind of two ways of thinking about making their offices work better. So one is prosecutors in our system have ended up becoming kind of cheap, uh, uh, weird replacements as criminal justice policymakers. You know, they're often the ones who take a stand on what our criminal justice policies should be. They often testify at these legislative hearings or ask for certain things. Um, but it's really worth asking whether they are well positioned to know um, what makes them know what isn't or is not a good response to, to crime. And in many cases, when they're asking for things, they're actually just asking for things that make their job easier. <laughs> you know, so it's it's really good for them professionally to get mandatory sentences or to get long sentences, um, or maybe even something like this registry. Uh, you know, where they can keep track of people and you know think about how they're going to you know maybe failure to register is itself going to become a crime, and so now they can use that as leverage on people. You know, these are things that make their job easier. Um, what they're not good at is thinking about whether or not. Those things are actually good for public safety, Uh, you know, and if we were to look at the longer sentences or the mandatory minimums, you know, we would find that they are often not. Um, So one thing is to think about getting rid of then some of the things they may be asking for that give them this power, um, but in fact aren't really for the operation of criminal justice so you know certainly eliminating mandatory minimums to allow judges to have a check on prosecutors um more back-end checks on their initial decisions by having parole and other second look mechanisms in place um for sure finding a way to create a cap on their ability to use state prison facilities without having any internalization of those costs um I think all those things are really important. And then the other kind of bucket of things that I have in the book are for the prosecutors who are elected and people who are thinking about who should they choose as a prosecutor. You know, we're in a time now where um, there's really been great efforts to get progressive prosecutors in place in jurisdictions. And so when people say they're progressive, I think it's important for voters to really have a good idea of what they should be looking for. And and to me, the kinds of things uh, they should be looking at are, you know, what is that prosecutor's policy on limiting pretrial detention? So we know pretrial detention actually causes more crimes um, than it, then it stops because you're taking people away from their jobs, um, maybe stable childcare arrangements, family connections. It's so disruptive for people already at the margins. You know, pretrial detention. We have a lot of empirical studies now showing it's a terrible idea. idea. And we know bail is just a way to criminalize poverty. So, so prosecutors who are running as as progressives should be committed to limiting pretrial detention and eliminating cash bail. You know, I think that's a key metric to look for. Um, I would also look to see how committed they are to things that we know help people with reentry. So they should be supportive of better prison programming and out there, you know, if they're going to get involved in criminal justice policy lobbying, they should be lobbying to make sure that the prisons within their jurisdiction are offering good programming for people, um, that they have real services available for victims of crime and not just, you know, this token you're going to bring criminal charges against somebody and seek a really long sentence when victims often need far more than that. Um, That they'll recognize that the person that uh, is the defendant in one case is often and the victim in another, you know, and that we're really talking about the same population of people. And so they really should be thinking about what trauma services they're going to offer for defendants um, and victims, you know, all the people who find themselves in the system. Um, you know, how are they going to think about lowering their incarceration rate within their jurisdiction? Uh, because we know they can do that and reduce crime rates as well. So, you know, those kinds of things that I there's lots of them in the book. I won't uh <laughs> I won't take up the time to talk about them all, but but the idea of, you know, that kind of two-pronged strategy. One is to the extent it's in our hands as voters, really paying attention to what prosecutors at uh, at the head of an office are are going to do. Um and you know, hopefully that'll then get to the line of attorneys within their office. Um but then also just thinking about more structural checks on them as well, um, besides just the election, making sure that they lose some of that leverage that has been abused for so long by not having mandatory minimums, by, you know, making a bigger role for second looks in sentencing, um, putting judges back in there as a check on the system. You know, I think all those things are, are things that we need in order for prosecutors to take the more traditional role they had before, you know, the 1970s and onward.
0: Okay, so then you move to sentencing commissions and criminal justice agencies, right?
1: Yes. Uh, You know, so that would be the why do we let legislators do this directly argument, <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, they're not there every day uh, dealing with what particle in the air they should and should not allow and in what quantities, um, because we recognize that people develop expertise in that, and it would be a good idea to have an agency set up to do that, you know, with the goal set by the legislative body, um, you know, given what the people want. And so in criminal justice, the idea would be, for sure, you still have a democratically accountable set of politicians setting the parameters of what this agency is supposed to achieve. Um, you know, presumably that would be maximizing public safety um, and, you know, at, at given limited resources and, you know, minimizing racial disparities and, and other goals that they should have. Um, but then the idea should be to let agencies look at Data and evidence to figure out what is the best way to do it, and I think here, you know, one of the sad things that happen in the history of criminal justice reform efforts is the federal sentencing commission. I think some people had that image for it when it was created that it might do a good job at that, um, but it was designed so poorly, uh, and. You know, we could talk about that if you like, but, you know, set up in a way that it really it stood no chance against the political forces of severity that the Federal Sentencing Commission for most of its existence really hasn't been that sort of force. Um, but, you know, the happier news is that there are a lot of states out there, out there that have actually pretty good good sentencing commissions um, that are doing some of what I talk about in the book and and they could be even better. And we could have agencies that do more than just that. You know, another example would be we have all these crazy collateral consequences out there that get passed when people, you know, not just the sex offender registries, but bars on housing, bars on licenses, um, you know, all the fines and fees, just insane collateral consequences on people that, you know, come from this political posturing and symbolic politics that, oh, you know, we're going to get them this way and we're going to get them that way. But if you were charged, if you had an agency that was charged with actually rationally considering which ones of these collateral consequences actually help reduce crime, you know, we would wipe away (laughs) almost all, I mean, you know, not all of them. And some of them might be more targeted to certain kinds of people. Um, But I would suspect that, upwards of 90 percent would be gone. Um, And, you know, and it would be a good thing. It would be a good thing for public safety. It would be a good thing for people's individual liberty. It would be a good thing for minimizing racial disparities. You know, there, there are just these ridiculous policies that just get passed in these frenzies of politicians racing to look like they're responsive to some issue or showing that they're tough. But um, if you had a body that was distant from those pressures that could really look and see what works and what doesn't work. Um, And the way I would say here, too, to think about it is it may seem weird when I've talked to people about this. Sometimes I get the look. Um, In a podcast, you can't really tell if you're getting the look or not. So that's good. But but when I've done this face to face, I sometimes see the look. And and I, I always just try to emphasize, you know, this is what we do every everywhere else. <laughs> you know, it's, this is not so weird.
0: You're not going to um, get the it, look from me on something like this because okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm on we, your side so on this one. <laughs>
1: probably not many of your listeners either, which is good. Um, but, you know, it happens a lot where people just think, what are you crazy? You know, why would we do that? And, and the idea is, but, you know, we have recognized as a society, we get better outcomes when we do that. You know, we have an entire approach to drugs and vaccines and medical care and occupational safety and health. You know, all of those things where we recognize that there there are actual experts who get better results for us and it's a good thing to harness that and use data um and so the idea is to do the same in a space where the stakes are just as high as those other areas in many ways higher um because we're talking about both individual liberty and the safety and security of of people who might become victims and so um The idea is to create these institutions that can better look at data and that then they would be accountable. So, you know, they would also have to explain why they picked one approach versus another. Um, They'd face judicial review for that. They'd have to do cost benefit analysis, just like we have for other administrative agencies. You know, it wouldn't be some marked departure from what we're already doing in other spheres. It would just be to finally bring this to the space of criminal law where it belongs.
0: So you also do talk about court solutions, but in the interest of time, I'm going to move on. To asking you what I think was a really good last part of the book in the conclusion, when uh, you know, because after I'd read all that, I was like, "Boy, these are all great ideas," but I don't really understand how this gets us past the Willie Horton problem, or the, you know, I don't know how do we get to that point. And you had a, you had some pretty good answers to that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Okay. So, and I don't want to claim that any of this is easy, but I think we are at a moment right now where we do have a mobilized group of people who really do care about criminal justice. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier with all of these people who are personally affected now. Um, People whose loved ones have been incarcerated, people who themselves have been incarcerated, people who are in communities that have seen what it means to have lots of people in their community get sent away uh, to prisons or to have to go through jails. There's a lot of people who get this. Uh, there are people who get the racial injustice of this and how discriminatory it all is. And so there is a mobilized group of people who really care about this. And we know it because they have already changed elections for, for example, district attorneys in lots of places. You know, we're, we're seeing them take action. And so what my hope in this book is to get people who, who want to see things change, ask for the right things. So instead of, you know, kind of asking for the sentencing reduction for crime x which is not a lasting request because next year if there's a high profile crime um you know the the legislature can just erase that and put in the higher penalty frank Zimring once referred to that you know so people say Zimring's eraser you know you just that'll just change next year and so what i'm hoping is to get this mobilized group of people together and i think it's on the left and the right by the way that's the other kind of key to this is it's the people directly affected and people paying attention to this issue i think are all across the political spectrum because i do think you have people who care about fiscal responsibility and making sure we don't have a bloated ineffective government program of any kind um this is the worst, uh, and that want good results and people who are concerned with discrimination and equal treatment and proportional punishment. You know, I really think all of those folks can come together and say, this is stuff that needs to be fixed, which we're seeing because we're seeing criminal justice reform. But what we are currently seeing are these very modest changes, and they're mostly modest changes to substantive laws. And what I would like to see more of is pushes for institutional shifts that will be lasting. You know, the kinds of institutions, putting these agencies in place, getting um, parole and second look mechanisms put in, making sure there are fiscal and prison population caps put in place, the kinds of things that will that will have a lasting effect that will put um, the brakes on some of those political dynamics where people may want to do that same kind of symbolic rhetorical gesture, but these institutions will be set up so that they can't. Um, and so the hope is to channel that effort that's already out there to get better asks.
0: So I always ask the same final question in a somewhat of an attempt at humility. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but didn't ask?
1: Well, I guess the only thing, but you would already said why you didn't, <laughs> For judges, in the yeah. interest of time, so, but I will speak super quickly, okay. uh, just to make sure that I, because I don't want them missed in this, because right. I think. We have almost had this weird backlash where for a while courts were where we did a lot of criminal justice reform during the Warren Court era. Um, and I think we may have gone too far in the opposite direction to not pay attention to how important judges are, but it is critical to have a bench, federal and state, that uh, is focused on these issues and certainly to have federal judges protecting constitutional guarantees that have fallen out of favor but are are really vital to making sure that the government doesn't overreach so the other big thing i want reformers to pay attention to is judicial selection
0: that makes a lot of sense i really appreciate you taking the time to do this and i really liked the book thanks for sharing it with us
1: oh thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me this was fun
0: all right well thank you again and have a great day
1: you too bye
0: and now my take After we finished our interview earlier this week, I couldn't get one thing Ms. Barco said out of my head, something about Zimring's Eraser. Well, I looked it up and with a little help from Rachel, finally found the quote. Here it is. This is what uh, Ms. Barco referred to as Zimring's Eraser. And this was written in 1977 by Franklin E. Zimring in a book called Making the Punishment Fit the Crime, a Consumer's Guide to Sentencing Reform. Yet, reallocating power to the legislator means gambling on our ability to make major changes in the way elected officials think, talk, and act about crime. Once a determinate sentencing bill is before a legislative body, it takes no more than an eraser to make a one-year presumptive sentence into a six-year sentence for the same offense. The delicate scheme of priorities in any well-conceived sentencing proposal can be torpedoed by amendment with ease and political appeal." This is a pretty smart guideline for people like myself who are often trying to get legislation passed. What Mr. Zimring is suggesting is that we need need to construct legislation in such a way that it is difficult to erase too often we focus on the quick fix. If we say that, for instance, as is the case with clean slate legislation, that relief from a criminal record should happen after seven years, it would be pretty easy for a legislative body after the first spectacular case of recidivism to move those gold posts back to a longer level or longer amount of time uh, before people can clear their records. That's just an example, but this could happen on almost any kind of legislation from that to mandatory minimums to whatever. So how do we avoid this problem? Professor Barco suggests that creating a separate body, a commission, empowered to intervene to get between a judge and legislators when the laws are not accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish, when the outcomes are counterproductive, would be a better way to go about this. This seems like an incredibly good idea. One of the biggest problems we have now is that the legislator has little incentive to revisit laws unless they do so to increase punishments. And courts believe that, that it's not their role to decide these questions. Uh, they think that their job is to decide constitutional questions, and that even when legislators are flat wrong based on the evidence, when the laws that they pass are provably counterproductive, that uh, these would be considered political questions, and it's up to the voters and the legislator to fix such problems. I think about so many laws that have turned out to be disasters, laws that have caused almost unknowable Suffering. I think of the large network of laws that empowered the war on drugs, for instance, something that has allowed you know almost every crime to become a major crime that has made uh, police uh, become militarized, that has allowed neighborhoods to be fully surveilled. And uh, it, and the crazy thing is this is a war that's never even reduced supply, but has cost millions upon millions of dollars, destroyed un, you know, countless communities, and resulted in nothing but lost potential mass incarceration and, and huge amounts of death. And for what? As Michelle Alexander put it in her article about these failures, uh, at least in terms of Chicago, uh, in the New York Times yesterday— If wars on crime and drugs, militarized policing, get-tough sentencing policies, torture of suspects, and perpetual monitoring and surveillance of the poorest, most crime-ridden communities actually worked, Chicago would be one of the safest cities in the world. What if, for once, cooler heads prevailed? generally i believe bad laws are the result of anger and frustration and made in the heat of the moment what if we started to build in a set of brakes that could stop or even reverse the overreaches of the carceral state another benefit of this idea is it could create political uh, kind of cover for the bo- for for the board's decisions legislators could simply blame any cases that are sensationalized by the press on the commission and while the commission would probably have accountability mechanisms and might be always under some threat of being changed, it would still be hard to imagine it being worse than the status quo. We have a sentencing commission, at least on the federal level now, but it wasn't given any teeth. They can make recommendations, but they can't do anything with these those recommendations. Maybe this is too big of an ask in the current political environment, but at the very least, we should be cognizant of, uh, of constructing our legislation, at least, in ways that are uh, much harder to roll back. We need to at least be concerned with the idea that the way we construct or create the things in legislation aren't as easy to roll back as simply changing the year or creating a new mandatory minimum, et cetera. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. And make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats, oh, and coffee mugs, which is all kind of crazy. If you if you, if you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash Satellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and to Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website. Thanks so much for listening to the decarceration nation podcast. See you next time.